Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to the first bunker of 2021 with me, Andrew Harrison. As regular listeners know, ordinarily on a Monday, we start your week with a look at what's going to matter in the next seven days. But today we thought we'd look further ahead and start your year with the major stories and events that might shape 2021, unexpected pandemics and asteroid strikes notwithstanding. So I've got our unofficial World Affairs Desk editor, former diplomat and man about the planet, Arthur Snell, with me for some thoughts. Hello, Arthur. How are you doing? Hi, Andrew. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Are you recuperated and ready for uh, what's going to definitely be a fantastic year for Britain, like Boris Johnson said last year? Well, I, I follow that great philosopher, Yaz, who told us that the only way is up. For you and me. On that note, let's start with the big one, which is Biden. And unless Donald Trump manages to find his 11,780 votes, uh, as he was asking Brad Raffensperger on the phone over the weekend, apparently, in Georgia, this year will be shaped by the new president. What are the key issues that are going to be in Biden's in-tray? Well, it's going to be groaning, isn't it? He's got the problem of trying to reunite a country where nearly half of the voters have now bought into Trump's lies about the election having been stolen. And and what makes that difficult is that this is turning into really serious radicalization. You had a suicide bomber, terrorist suicide bomber, blow himself up in Nashville a couple of weeks ago. If this was happening in a country, particularly in a country with a large Muslim population, people would be talking about, uh, you know, radicalization and, and terrorism and so on, because it's happening in America. We don't like to talk about that. But, but I think Biden's got that sort of cultural political issue in his own country. He's still got, obviously, the world's biggest COVID outbreak. And then there's a fairly uh, wide range of international issues he needs to look at. Iran, Russia, China, climate change, you name it. Well, let, let, let's look at that domestic radicalization thing a little bit more closely. I mean, the, the call that, that just broke on Sunday night from Trump to George's uh, Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, that I just mentioned, this was incredible. I mean, it was it was a, a, a naked attempt to fix the election. And to Raffensperger's credit, he pushed back on that fairly firmly. To what extent has that sector of voters abandoned the commitment to elected democracy, that, it's, that it's, they simply must have the winner that they want, irrespective of democratic considerations? Well, I think the big unanswered question is what all of this looks like if you can take Trump out of the equation. One of the things that happened just after the election, you know, Trump was refusing to accept the results, but lots of people said, don't worry, you know, he's just having a little tantrum, it'll all wear down, there'll be a normal transition, um, and, you know, by by the 1st of February, we'll kind of forget about it. Now, that's clearly not going to happen. You know, Trump is still very actively trying to fix this election. And in a way, the sort of the hilarity of Rudy Giuliani and his useless lawsuits has moved to something rather more troubling, where, as, as we heard last night, yeah, the president is trying to intimidate um, elected officials in another state to find him 12,000 votes. Whether or not a significant proportion of the American electorate has given up on democracy, or whether it's just when Trump's on the ballot paper, they can't accept the concept of him losing. And of course, he will go further than anyone else in sort of whipping up this idea. I think that's not clear yet. I, I still allow myself to be a tiny bit optimistic and ultimately conclude that most Republicans in terms of politicians, would like Trump out of the way because he stands in the way of their own ambitions. And once he's gone, uh, they will return to something a bit more normal. But undoubtedly, this is going to have a hugely damaging effect. People will always now question the results in outrageous ways that previously would have just seemed ridiculous.
that attack in, in Nashville, which seems to be such a strange outlier, we haven't yet heard anything about ha- what connections the perpetrator may have had or whether they were uh, uh, op- operating on their own. Do you think this is something that, that, that Biden will have to contend with, actual political violence in the first year of his administration? I think it definitely is. And I think one of the things about America is actually there is quite a history of far right, you know, white nationalist political violence. You can go all the way back to the Oklahoma bombing during the Clinton era. Again, this is likely to increase when you have the politics of paranoia, the politics of resentment, and now the politics of a stolen election. Now, I don't know in the specific case of Nashville whether this is a completely solo nutcase or somebody who was part of something a bit bigger. But what you've got is a situation where actually the single most dangerous group now in America, just statistically in terms of the number of attacks carried out, the number of killings, is far-right white nationalists. And let's not forget, this is a country where guns are readily available. Iran is also going to matter a lot. Trump abrogated the Obama nuclear deal. Is Biden going to simply attempt to, to reconstruct it or has did Trump's actions permanently sort of change the dynamic? I think they have changed the dynamic and I hesitate to say this, but actually it may allow Biden to go back in and get a slightly better deal. Iranian economy is really suffering. It, it you know, Trump's sanctions have bitten and on top of that, you've got all the issues of COVID and the fact that demand for oil, which is their their one really big export has dropped hugely. We're not flying planes. We're not driving around as much as we as we used to. So this is a good time to be trying to get a better deal out of Iran. And I think it's also it will be very important to Joe Biden to show that he's not simply just re, switching back on the old deal, but actually demonstrating to the world that he can be tough with Iran, but in a way that is constructive, as opposed to Trump's approach, which was just to tear things up. Uh, Speaking of being tough, there's the question of Russia and Putin and the United States. Trump's approach was supine. How do you think Biden is likely to be more assertive? Where where are the kind of pressure points between Russia and the United States at the moment? Well, I think this is where you are going to see a significant change. Um, You know, the, the relations between the US and Russia have just been bizarre under Trump. There's all kinds of reasons to to speculate that perhaps this is because Trump is in some way in hock to Putin. Who knows? But one of the things that was unfolding in December, so much was going on, but one of the things was the revelation of an absolutely immense uh, hack by Russian actors, state-backed actors, on a huge wide range of US government entities. A very, very aggressive act by the Russians. They've hacked into Treasury Department, into uh, Department of Energy, which includes the administration of America's nuclear arsenal, big businesses, you name it. So even if that hadn't happened, Biden would be under a lot of pressure to demonstrate, you know, we're going to deal totally differently with Russia than the way the way Trump has. With this sort of ringing in their ears, I think we're going to see some very, very uh, kind of frosty um, relations. I'm sure that will include new sanctions, maybe increasing targeted sanctions on certain high-level individuals and so-called Magnitsky sanctions, where um, people who in some way have contributed to human rights violations get personally targeted. And climate change is going to be back on the US agenda. John Kerry is climate envoy. We've got COP26 climate summit this year in Glasgow with the United States participating properly for a change. Can you see this with so much on 
in the intro, so much on the plate. Is Biden going to be able to make climate change as central uh, to the early years of his administration as perhaps he promised during the election? I think he probably has to, because I think that's one of the ways in which he can show the the sort of the left of his own party that he hasn't forgotten about them, that he's taking them seriously, that he's not taking them for granted, which is their sort of big fear, given that Biden's own background is very much in the centre of the Democratic Party. It, appointing John Kerry is is a huge uh, gesture of of taking this seriously. You know, Kerry was arguably the most successful Secretary of State of, of the Obama years. He, he's taken very seriously a former presidential candidate. You know, he's someone uh, of, of the sort of, um, of the highest levels of, of kind of status and, and um, seriousness in, in US politics. So I think, I think Biden wants to take a very strong stand on climate change. And, and I, I think he's sort of made the first steps to demonstrate that. Meanwhile, there's a whole lot of sort of new conflicts brewing, particularly in North Africa and the Western Sahara. Is this something that Biden's going to want to get involved in, or is it? You know, we're unexpected it to be quite as inward-looking a presidency as the Trump presidency, but with so much, to, so many repairs to make, is this going to be, you know, not as interventionist a, um, a Democrat presidency as we've seen in the past? I'm sure that's right. I think you know any student of history, and obviously Biden's lived through quite a lot of this history will have seen that it's quite hard to get sort of foreign policy gains. You can see why presidents do it, because when Congress turns against them, they, they still have foreign policy as something, you know, lever that they can pull. Specifically in, in, you know, North Africa, yeah, Trump upset the apple cart by sort of fairly arbitrarily uh, recognising Morocco's claim on the Western Sahara, which is a, has been in dispute for, for decades and, and on the extraordinary spurious grounds, Trump tweeted that because Morocco had recognized U.S. independence in the 18th century, <laughs> it was only fair that now the U.S. recognized the Western Sahara. It, it's certainly a novel approach to diplomacy, not one that I, I'd seen in, in my time. So to some extent, Trump, uh, Biden has been sort of landed with, you know, a, an in-tray full of little, little bombs that, that Trump had left lying around. But I think in general, he's just going to try and tone things down, return to norms, not sort of, you know, bizarrely recognise, unrecognised bits of territorial claims and so on. From a selfish point of view, before we move on from the United States, is there any likelihood of a UK-US trade deal? I think it's, it's very, very unlikely in 2021. It's not a priority for the US. Whilst Boris Johnson was terribly pleased to have been rung up fairly early on by Biden, possibly the first uh, European leader. My understanding is that they've had real trouble engaging since then with the Biden team, uh, the, 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 the Boris Johnson's government. It is reasonably clear that Biden doesn't feel close to Johnson. He doesn't particularly like some of the things that Johnson said about Obama and, and Hillary Clinton also in the past. Um, and of course, Biden's own sort of cultural heritage is is Irish American, and and that may, may you know play a role there. But I think there's a much more practical point, which is that to get a UK US trade deal, Biden needs Congress to help him. Biden's biggest challenge of his whole presidency is Congress, and I don't think he's going to invest a lot of political capital in something that is hardly a priority for ordinary Americans. Let's move away from the United States, China. 
was much more assertive during the during the Trump presidency, even with the total left field arrival of the of the coronavirus. What's likely to be happening around China this year, particularly around Taiwan and the South China Sea? Well, I think China, you know, started twenty twenty in a bit of a mess with, with a novel coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, and it ends twenty twenty looking much more powerful. It, unlike most large countries has got on top of its coronavirus outbreak. It seems to have found a way to control it. And the other thing, which we're not talking very much about here in the West, but is very significant, is China has a coronavirus vaccine, which is being taken up by a lot of countries outside Europe and North America. So across the Middle East, people are using the Sinopharm vaccine. Egypt has just authorized it for use. And I'm pretty sure that sooner or later uh, here in Europe, we'll start using it as well. So China's sort of economic technological muscle is being felt even in the field of coronavirus, where arguably, you know, they're, they're exposed. So I think we're going to see China reasserting itself. A lot of countries are economically in a complete mess as a result of COVID. China's very good at taking advantage of that offering uh, what look like great deals that turn out to have quite sort of difficult terms and conditions in terms of, you know, loans and loan-based diplomacy and so on. So I think 2021 will be a year when China really take, pushes its advantage in, in the sort of emerging market economies of the world. You mentioned uh, when we were talking before the podcast, Taiwan as well. Yeah. So Taiwan uh, is probably a, a potential flashpoint. China, as, as everybody knows, has, has claimed Taiwan as part of its integral part of its territory. Um, over the years, the US has offered Taiwan all kinds of defense guarantees. And I think in the context of what's happened with the coronavirus in 2020, Biden is going to continue to, to, to want to demonstrate a sort of strong hand there. But China's increasingly inclined to much more aggressive action. So I would hesitate to predict some kind of uh, outbreak of conflict, which if it did happen would be devastating. But I think that's going to be a very, very delicate issue over this year. I'm going to move on to the quickfire round now, because you know, the whole load of things that, that we need to keep on our agenda, tensions between Greece and Turkey to look forward to resurging. How's that happening again? Yeah, well, so Turkey over the last few years under President Erdogan has become much more assertive and it's become assertive one in this area of sort of almost culturally based uh, diplomatic and security activity. Turkey is run by an Islamist president and he makes common cause with other Islamists, particularly in Libya. And in Libya, what you see is this sort of Mediterranean ambition of Turkey, almost neo-Ottoman, where they've, they've sort of defined new maritime boundaries that Turkey believes gives it the right to start prospecting for oil and gas. The only problem with that is you've got a country called Greece, which has always felt threatened by Turkey and now feels particularly so as Turkey sending out these, uh, these ships to investigate possible gas deposits under the sea. Greece has managed to secure very strong support from France and so this becomes a whole new flashpoint in the Eastern Mediterranean at a time when many people are very suspicious of Turkey and even questioning whether it should continue to be part of NATO. Meanwhile, Afghanistan is probably going to be returning to Taliban control in a year that's, that's the 20th anniversary of 9-11, uh, yeah, which is something of a humiliation, I would have thought. It, it does feel, if you think of the literally trillions of dollars that have been spent by different NATO countries in Afghanistan, 
the thousands of, of dead Afghans and, and equally thousands of, of dead foreign troops, albeit smaller numbers. It's extraordinary that we get to the end almost where we began. I th- basically, where the Taliban is now, they're in peace talks with the Afghan government. It seems quite likely that the end state of those peace talks will involve them in government. And if that doesn't happen, they might even militarily seize control of the country. They're increasing their reach, all kinds of areas, including Helmand, which you know British soldiers fought over for years, have, have effectively become part of Taliban control. So yeah, uh, it looks like they're back. Um, people often conflate the Taliban with ISIS and, and uh, sort of proactive worldwide Islamist terrorism. If, if the Taliban take control of Afghanistan again? Is it going to be the sort of base of global terrorism that George W. Bush used to claim? I don't think so. I mean, it is, it's an ultra-conservative cultural movement that represents the sort of Pashtun uh, tendency within the complex ethnic makeup of Afghanistan. It is certainly behaves like a terrorist movement in the use of suicide bombers and, and targeting civilians, but it is not part of some kind of worldwide movement seeking to export uh, you know, fundamentalist Islam across the world. I will have no pleasure in seeing the Taliban sort of regain control of Afghanistan, but it's not the same as ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Also this year, Mohammed bin Salman is going to become king of Saudi Arabia and Angela Merkel will be disappearing from the from the world stage. There are German elections in, in September. Do you think we're going to be looking at a new... I don't know, a, new, a, a sort of new global cast of characters this year. Well, there's a bit of that, isn't there? So MBS will probably become king of Saudi Arabia. I mean, he's effectively operating like a king, but but there will be that significant change. It really matters in Saudi Arabia who actually wears the crown. As we said, Merkel, who's been in, been a, the key feature of both German and European politics for a decade and a half will be standing down. And clearly Biden, to some extent, who's a continuity figure, is coming back up again. So I think by the end of the year that there may be a series of sort of people who that we, we don't recognise who are the new people that matter in global politics. One big question before we go, Arthur, the sort of thing that we, we kind of hold out for on this podcast is the idea that populism might start to fade. Trump is going do you think that it, we might start to see populism crumble in places like Brazil and Poland without that big figure, that sort of, you know, that, that kind of tentpole figure in world politics? I would love to hope so. I think the experience of watching how Trump has responded to the election results and how he's been enabled by his party doesn't give me a lot of confidence. Yes, Trump lost the election and he lost it by a fairly large margin. But what he's effectively done is turned the Republican Party away from being a party that is involved in democratic politics and is now involved in sort of populist nationalism, uh, where democracy is, is, is almost an obstacle to, to what they want to do. So it seems to me that the kind of the vigorous uh, sort of anger that drives this populism is still very much there and, you know, can easily be harnessed. Um, having said that, uh, you know, Brazil has probably done even worse than the USA in terms of handling the coronavirus outbreak. One would hope that that had some kind of electoral impact, just as it did for Trump in, in November. So, yeah, m- maybe populism will will not look quite as on the march as it has in recent years, but it seems to me that it's got a very kind of resilient uh, features to it. 
Arthur, thank you for getting up early to take us through all of this. We're going to hold you to all of your predictions this time next year. But thanks for joining us, Arthur. No worries. And, and obviously, I'll, I'll be trying to sort of rewrite everything I've said in, in, in the result of what actually happens this year. <laughs> In the meantime, everyone, uh, we're back tomorrow with the first panel edition of the Bunker of the Year. Patreon people, you get it on Monday evening instead of Tuesday morning, and you get it without adverts. So if you're not backing us on Patreon yet, why not start now? New year, new you. Patreon back has made our first year a huge success, so why not join the happy throng? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily. Start your year was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>